it's uh, it's good to nerd out and and talk with fellow uh, Tolkien enthusiasts. And I really appreciate you uh, having me on. Yeah, and it's it's so much cheaper than therapy, man. Like, <laughs> ain't that the truth? Welcome, my lords, to the Well Earned Comforts Podcast. I'm Sam, and I'm Seth. Thank you for joining us on the Walls of Isengard as we explore the many works of Tolkien and discuss life. We're glad to have you as part of the fellowship, as there's no telling where we'll be swept off to, and especially today, there's definitely no telling where we're going because we have an extra guest. So rather than just jumping into Seth and I babbling like Butterbur, we're going to hear from somebody you've never heard before, uh, a guy named Mike. He is a husband, father, humanities professor for 13 years, and an author. We are getting the big names up on this podcast now. He is the author of the Good News of the Return of the King, the Gospel in Middle-earth, which I am so excited to hear about. But uh, we're just going to give you the floor, Michael, if that's all right. Go ahead and sure. tell us who, who's Michael and how do you, how'd you gotten Tolkien and what, what do you like? Yeah. About? Well, I mean, you summed up my most important jobs right away. I mean, husband, father of two. Um, so we have an eight-year-old Lucas, five-year-old Annabelle. They're both handfuls. Uh, Lucas just got his uh, orange belt in Taekwondo. Uh, Annabelle is five going on 15. Um, very sassy, <laughs> spunky. We love it. You know, she's going to give that's cool with us. Um, she's into dance. You know, those are my most important jobs. Uh, so obviously, it's the most important thing I could tell you about who I am. But uh, yeah, this Absolutely. is actually my 13th year uh, as a humanities professor. I teach at St. Petersburg College in uh, Clearwater, Florida. And uh, as you said, I wrote a book in uh, came out in September of 2020. So it's been out for a couple of years now. Um, called The Good News of the Return of the King, Gospel in Middle Earth. It was published by uh, Whipfenstock out there in, I think, Oregon. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you guys want me to talk talk Tolkien and how I got into him? Is that good? Yeah, good place yeah. To He's just okay. what we kind of do is uh, we started this uh, podcast just kind of sharing, because obviously yeah. Tolkien is more than just a... Uh, a hobby for us at this point you know he's part of our lives he's maybe even a part of our identities which maybe shouldn't be a thing but we you know anytime somebody asks me like what what are you into and then i'll be like i'm into tolkien and i'll just tell them more than they want to know and so uh yeah whatever whatever you want to share man yeah okay cool i mean i'm it's the same for me i mean part of my story i tell in the preface of my book is that i'll be honest i mean i'm a practicing christian uh consider myself very devout but Early in my walk with Christ, I felt that I was getting more excitement out of Middle Earth than I was the Bible. I know that's not God's fault. It was my fault. And yet I know that it was sort of part of God's plan. Not sort of. It was God's plan now that I can kind of look back and and see it. And uh, it's interesting in 2001 because, you know, the first Peter Jackson film. Talk talk about bloopers. I was on a podcast uh, last year or something. The guy said Samuel Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, man, I'm tired of these. Mother of the dwarfs in this book. I just had it going through my head. It was it was hilarious. But uh, anyway, that, um, that would be epic. <laughs> oh, it was it was funny. I think I think he fixed it sadly, but um, it, anyway, it was good. So just a little bit of humor. But in two thousand one, before the Peter Jackson first film Fellowship of the Ring came out, um, early in the year, my mom was kind of coming back to Christianity after a really bad, uh, actually near death experience with a car accident. And uh, I also discovered Tolkien that same time through the books. My brother Chris read them to me. Um, I didn't realize at the time that these two things were kind of perfectly timed and and related. Uh, but as the years went on, you know, and I, I, after the first movie, I saw it. I kind of finished reading everything, and then gradually got into the Hobbit and the Silmarillion and all that. But 
Um, it was really interesting to see how God was, now I see this in retrospect, putting all the pieces together. And I think it was all part of his plan that I would kind of find and hear the gospel best first expressed in Tolkien's writings. And, you know, I know later on we'll talk about how Christian these stories are to him and how important that was. In fact, he said on a rank of, you know, least and most important, that was the most important thing about him. So I think that really needs to be said. And so, uh, you know, I mean, there are lots of little moments that kind of spelled it out for me, but what really made Tolkien a part of my identity, I, I continue to read scholarly books and I realized that, you know, oh, maybe I've been looking at the Bible all wrong and oh, man, this, this, uh, how God became King stuff that N.T. Wright talks about in his books really reminds me of a story I've heard before. And like, I never imagined to think of the Bible in that way, but I'm like, oh, this reminds me of Lord of the Rings. And so through the writings of Peter Kraft and I don't know if your listeners or if you guys know these authors, but um, N.T. Wright, he's an Anglican scholar. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, really opened my eyes to to realizing that I had experienced the gospel first in Middle Earth. And that brought me back to a refreshed reading of scripture and reading it correctly. So going back to the comment that it wasn't God's fault, I was reading it wrong. I didn't have a lot of good guides growing up. Uh, I was actually raised Catholic and, you know, baptized, received First Communion, and then parents got a divorce. And so we drifted away and then drifted back in 2001. So it's it's been interesting. But I, I would echo what you guys said, that Tolkien is definitely a part of me and uh, definitely part of my identity as a Christian, and I'm grateful for him. I think he would be pleased with the reasons why I wrote my book, I hope. Yeah. yeah. You, you said that you cool. were reading the Bible incorrectly and mm. that Tolkien kind of helped change that. What? What was that change exactly? What, how do you read it differently now than you did before? I think that's a great question. I think it's more that I'm paying attention to how much God loves stories and, and myth. And that's how I talk about on my podcast and in my book, a myth in the ancient sense of a narrated worldview as a story that appeals to the heart and to the emotions, to the imagination, and not just to reason, although it does that too, kind of indirectly. And it was just a, a, a more rich and imaginative way of looking at it and just imagining that I'm caught up in the story of God becoming king in Jesus and what that means. And then looking at the fourfold sort of storyline that we we hear so much about today in books written by Christian scholars of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And just seeing all of those themes so poignant and crisply expressed in Tolkien's writings. Uh, as, as I came back to the Bible, I was realizing, okay, well, this kind of prepared me to read that correctly. And that's what a lot of you know people are saying is the right way to read scripture and you know to anchor it in you know uh, historical understanding and you know I didn't know any of that stuff mm -hmm. um, so to me it was just to kind of it was just it was dull you know like Tolkien says and on fairy stories we need to clean our windows um, and I really needed to clean mine and and I think think that probably answers the question um, it was imaginatively deficient yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Like being a youth pastor myself, like we have so many students that just don't don't care to read the Bible, don't even know how to read the Bible. And I remember over the summer, I told the story in Judges of uh, one of the judges uh, stabbing the stabbing the bad king in the stomach, and his sword went all the way through the stomach and was engulfed by all, his, by all his fat. And then he fell over dead. And the kids are like, "This is a real story in the Bible." I'm like, "Yeah, go check it out." Like this is. There's a lot more to this than just the do's and don'ts and the rules and the genealogies. Like there's really amazing story in through this. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the Bible as a whole, the story from the beginning to the end is 
is just a love story, just a love letter written from God to us. And obviously with Jesus being that centerpiece, the King, um, which mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more here, here in a little bit, but uh, Michael, what we love to do on this podcast, just a little fun uh, riddles in the dark is what we call it. Um, this is our section okay. where we pick a piece of the trilogy book, a section of dialogue specifically. And without saying any character names, we see if everyone can guess uh, what we're trying to find, like book, context, and uh, character as well. So Ooh, okay. I'll go. I'll go first, and I'll I'll do it. To, I'll I'll, sh- I'll challenge Seth first, and then he can challenge you. That way, you get a kind of an idea of what we're looking at here. And then okay. uh, I don't know if you have a copy on hand. You can you can challenge I'm, me I'm if you do. One up. Yeah, yeah. I have a I have a line here. I can I can. Uh, so I, I would read a line, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah we can we just... use dialogue uh, just to gotcha. keep it straightforward so that you can guess a character. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and start and uh, just kind of like pick a random page and I'll do that for Seth here. Okay. <laughs> oh boy. This will be tough. Ass, fool, thrice worthy and beloved Barlaman. It is the best news I have had since midsummer. It's worth a gold piece piece at the least. May your beer be laid under enchantment of surpasses excellence for, for seven, seven years. years. Okay. <laughs> Whoa. It's Gandalf after uh, he finds out that Barlamin sped them on their way with Strider. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. What? What? What's a good uh, one. But what? What? What chapter is, is that in? Oh, I. You know, I listen to the audiobooks. I don't know the chapter names. <laughs> it's the longest chapter. Uh, I don't know. Ooh. The long road or journey? I don't know. Was there a hint in there? I don't uh, know the chapter name. Mike, what do you got? Oh man, hold on. Is it? Nope. Why would Gandalf be recounting the story? Was is it the Council of Elrond? Council of Elrond. Oh. Yes. Okay. okay. Many yes. meetings is the chapter before it, right? Yep. You got it. Okay. Yes, that is a. <laughs> I was reading it to my our kids <laughs> recently. And that took like two weeks to get through that. And I'm like, okay, I promise yeah. we're almost done. They're like, uh, not a council again. That's funny. Cause that's actually my favorite chapter in the entire trilogy. I just so love good. how it pulls so many different storylines into this, you know, yeah. this one chapter, especially yeah, so, having a bit more like context for first and second age, as well as third age. Cause they talk a lot about the yeah. history of everything else too. So bet. All right, Mike. So I'm going to do the same thing here. Pick a random page and find a piece of dialogue here. Hmm. This could actually be a challenging one. All right. Uh, The treacherous are ever distrustful, answered blank wearily. But you need not fear for your skin. I do not wish to kill you or hurt you, as you would know if you really understood me. This is for that me, is right? tough. That is yeah. for Mike, yes, sir. Um, oh gosh, I, I mean, my first instinct is to say Strider or Aragorn. Not quite. Uh, <laughs> it's. Do you want me to read it again? Yeah. Yeah, this is actually a really good one because uh, it's uh, it doesn't line up perfectly with the movies either. So, uh, right. the treacherous are ever distrustful. Answered so and answered blank wearily. But you need not fear for your skin. I do not wish to kill you or hurt you, as you would know if you really understood me. Hmm. I'll go a little bit further. And I have the power to protect you. I am giving you a last chance. You can leave Orthanc free if you choose. There it is. Okay, Saruman. 
is that who's speaking or who's being spoken to? It's who's speaking. Ah, backwards actually. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, it's the return. It's the it's the return of the king. Well, it's that's why I said it doesn't line up to the to the movies properly. Right. So, so who's speaking then? I'm um. That is Gandalf speaking to Sauron when they ride up to Isengard uh, after the Battle that, of Helm's Deep. That makes sense now that he's Gandalf the White and speaking with more authority. Okay, that was yeah, that, that was, was super that, that's probably the hardest one we've ever done. Honestly, <laughs> that's a good line. No, that's yeah. good. Well, thanks a lot for saving that for me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I got right? some more to be, guys. Come on. I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, Mike, go ahead and pick one out for Sam. See, see what we got here. Well, so I don't have my paperback copy, but I'm, I'm going to be reading from uh, a quote that I have here. So That's great. Uh, how shall a man judge what to do in such times? Uh, I could go on a little bit more. I, I, I would, but I think it would um, probably spoil I've got it. a guess. Uh, I would say okay. the Siege of Gondor, Gandalf is talking to Pippin up on the walls of uh, Minas Tirith. Oh, that is close. Hmm. No cigar. How shall a man judge what to do in such times? Oh. I feel like, well, you said I was close, but I'm, I'm well, thinking not. Well, I, I, I shouldn't give any <laughs> hints. Right? Can I give hints or? Sure. Go ahead and read a little bit further along if, if you have a bit more. Well, uh, OK, so I have the response. So that yeah, was that was on. a person asking a question. The response comes as he as as he ever has judged good and ill have not changed since yesteryear nor are they one thing among elves and dwarves so there's two people talking here now okay another among men it is a man's part to discern them as much in the golden wood as in, in his own house uh that's a hard one i, th I, I mean, think i have a guess but i'm curious what I, you have I, to say. yeah i I'm, I'm thinking just based off what you said like it maybe is Aragorn and Legolas talking. Um, yeah, part of that. Correct. Okay. <laughs> it's Legolas and Gimli, perhaps? Oh, you had it right with the first one. Oh, thing. gosh. It's, okay. uh, so, Aomer, I know that was a tough one. Aomer, this is the two towers. I think it's the um, Riders of Rohan chapter. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. Aomer bumps into the Aomer three hunters. Yeah. yeah, he's like, what the heck are you guys doing here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he asks the question, and then Aragorn responds with the sort of ethics lesson there, which is awesome. Yeah, it's great. And very true. So yeah, those <laughs> last two are hard. I got lucky with the, the easy one. <laughs> <laughs> Oof, that was fun. Man. That was really fun. Yeah, yeah we, we always enjoy doing that. Yeah, I yeah. can see why. Good stuff. Some, and it's something that we can't even plan for. Like, we have no idea what's going to come up. So it's yeah. sometimes we look really good. Sometimes we look really bad. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, it's, it's that is uh, probably right. fun for your, your audience, too. <laughs> I hope so. We don't get a whole lot of feedback. So <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. We'll nudge yeah. him. We'll nudge him. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, yeah, now, now that we've uh, done a little babbling like Butterbur, a little uh, riddles in the dark, uh, Mike uh, or Michael, however you prefer, uh, love to hear just kind of a bit about your book, um, a bit about your book and your allegory too, um, of what you have written and what has kind of spurred you to to write that. What inspired you to write this book? Uh, you mentioned it came out in 2020. I don't know if the pandemic had anything to do with it, had extra time, wanted to, or if this was a, a plan in in place already. But yeah, just go yeah. ahead. The floor is yours. Thanks. Great question. So, uh, in 2011 or 2012, shortly after I read Simply Jesus by N.T. Wright, and I started to 
you know, I got that revelation. I'm like, this reminds me of a story I've read. It's Lord of the Rings. And now I bounce back to the Bible with that kind of mentality we were talking about earlier. And um, I started to just open up Word documents, especially during Advent when things slowed down in the semester. And I would type stuff up. Uh, you know, this is actually still before one of our, our first kid was born, Lucas. I uh, was born in 2014. So I had a bunch of time, right? So I'm just typing. And uh, these notes, these musings by 2014 became uh, a proposal for a paper and a speech I'd give at a conference in New Orleans in 2015. Uh, when Lucas was little, and then my wife met me out there. I delivered the the paper to crowd of thousands. So I'm kidding. There were like six <laughs> people, <laughs> nice. six people or so. But it was it was a you know in my defense, uh, <clears throat> there were lots of rooms and lots of places to go. Anyway, sure, uh, so, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I, I delivered the delivered the paper, and it went well. And then they had this book fair. And, you know, it was really intimidating. I you know, holding my paper, trembling, and this little copy of my proposal. And I started to approach some of the booths and, you know, start up conversations. Uh, I went to uh, one publisher. Uh, I'll say it's McFarland. It's no secret. And at first, I just thought they'd given me the cold shoulder. A couple weeks later, I found out that they were interested in talking to me for the book. So I was with this one publisher until about 2019. This is um, great that we get to talk about this. I don't get to discuss this much on podcasts that I've been on because yeah. um, it was a really arduous, exhausting journey to write this mm. book. So, you know, our daughter Annabelle was born in 2017. So I'm writing and writing in 2019, Advent season again. And for whatever reason, I'll just say it simply like this. And uh, the publisher basically said, it's a little too explicitly Christian for our taste. Uh. I'm like, well, I did kind of make that clear, but we left we left things as they were mm. and uh, i tried to make a defense because i wasn't sure what was going to happen right i really wanted to publish this book sure. and i'll say why in a, in a moment um like why i wrote it so i uh i just I did networking and prayed and, and worked really hard to humble myself before people and uh i had some really great people help me and i always like to give them shout outs because i'm so grateful for um Dr. Paul Gould, he actually teaches down at uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University here in Florida. Uh, he's uh, got the master's and I think undergraduate program for uh, apologetics with Paul Copan. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so Dr. Gould and Dr. Lewis Marcos, I don't know if you've heard of that name. He's um, just gr they both helped me so much and just put me up on their shoulders and got me connected to the right people, found a new publisher with Whip and Stock. So the book was eventually published, as you know, and basically the reason why I wrote it is in all the books I read over the years about Tolkien, there's this problem is how can the Lord of the Rings, let's just focus on that magnus opus, right? Yeah. Be Christian and not be an allegory. Mm. And I, I always felt like, okay, I didn't really understand what allegory was, so I wasn't really sure I understood the problem. As I gradually understood the problem, I saw what it, why it was such a pervasive and ubiquitous problem for everybody. So I said, okay. I've got to write a book because I'm not all the answers that I read are so close. And I, I'm like, they're on the tip of saying something. This reminds again, it's like this reminds me of something. I don't know what it is. So I just researched it and it became a book um, about uh, parables and the Lord of the Rings and Jesus and a whole host of other things. So that's interesting because Tolkien explicitly states that he doesn't like allegory. He doesn't like right. he doesn't like forcing his reader to make a connection if they make the connection on their own sam and i have talked about this a lot on the podcast if you make the connection that's what he wants but he doesn't yep. want to force it upon you 
Um, so it's no. honestly kind of a brave endeavor <laughs> to yeah. be like, okay, I know at its core that it is allegory, but he explicitly yes. says that he hates allegory. So how do you, how do you marry the two? Yeah. So I'd like to read a couple things to y'all to answer this question. And, uh, and if you have some follow-up questions, we can go from there, but Father Robert Murray, who was a Jesuit friend of Tolkien and uh, a correspondent in some of his letters, letter 142 and 156 in particular, if y'all are you know, wanting to chase it down. Um, but he wrote an essay called Tolkien and the Art of the Parable in a book called Tolkien, a Celebration, edited by Joseph Pierce. And in that essay, so that essay's title alone is provocative, right? Mm, he says yeah. this. He didn't say Tolkien and the Art of Allegory. He does talk about allegory. So here's what he says. And something you just said about allegory, everything you just said is kind of, it'll make sense. So Murray says this in a quote, parable is a skillful use of the arts of speech. So as not to compel or to impose, but to invite a response in which the hearer is personally active. Now he says, allegory is woven into the fabric of the parable, but with a delicacy that does not spoil the joy of working it out for oneself. End quote. Mm. You just said that. Yeah. That's and quote. that's yeah, it is. And I, I, the more I read about Jesus's parables, the more I saw what he was talking about. And I read tons of tomes on parables are all in my bibliography. And I'm like, man, yeah, that's what these biblical scholars are saying, too. I'm like, I kept reading the same statements over and over again. It, it We have to kind of come back to our allegory and parables so very different that they're in two separate categories. And it'll take too long to probably go into that. But the answer is no. You can either speak of a spectrum of allegories with parable being a type or vice versa, a spectrum of parables with allegory being uh, you know, a type of parable. I've heard some scholars say one, and one scholar says, look, a bunch of ink has been spilled. It doesn't really matter whether we speak of allegories or parables. And so when I read that, I'm like, well, let me see what Tolkien says. Mm -hmm. And uh, indeed, as you, as you pointed out, and this is where it gets really interesting, Tolkien does say in the forward to the second edition, of uh, Lord of the Rings that he dislikes, cordially dislikes allegory. But what else does he say? In several places, he has lots of different interesting things to say. Here are just a couple of thoughts. He says in letter 186, I'm indebted to Tolkien scholar Joseph Pierce for pointing this out in his own book. He says, of course, Tolkien says, of course, my story is not an allegory of atomic power, but of power, with a capital P here, exerted for domination. I think he's probably talking about Sauron, um, yep. others. Um, so I read that and, and then I read Pierce and he said, well, Tolkien says that the Lord of the Rings is an allegory in one sense, but not in another. So now we have two different kinds of allegories. And I thought, okay, I'm on to something. And then another interesting quote, Tolkien again, letter 131. In the, uh, for those of you that don't know who are listening, I know you guys probably know the collection of letters I'm referring to are edited by, uh, Humphrey Carpenter. You can find them on Amazon, uh, or as a Kindle book. So letter 131, uh, Tolkien says, uh, I dislike allegory, the conscious and intentional allegory at any attempt to explain the purport of myth or fairy tale must use allegorical language. Now, that's another interesting thing he says. And he also makes a distinction between allegory and allegorical, which I learned is a thing. I could talk <laughs> about that more later. And I'm like, what? Okay. And if I never, you know, hear allegory again, it'll be too soon. Like I'm, allegoried out after writing this book <laughs> um it is i can understand why it's vexed people but clearly the lord of the rings is a kind of allegory it's just not the kind he disliked um and i, I think is interesting so then what does that mean so the, what what 
what kind of story is it that opens up the door to some things? Yeah, that's that's super fascinating. I think, I mean, knowing <clears throat> as much about Tolkien as, as you did, I'm sure with a lot of research that you did for your book, like, you know, he he's very staunch Christian, Catholic, as we know. And so I feel like when you do have that as, as your first identity, it's impossible not to put that in any type of creation that you make, you know, in, in one way or the other. Now, obviously, he, he reprimanded C.S. Lewis for being too Christian in his allegory yep. Uh, yep. with the Chronicles of Narnia. But yeah, that's really fascinating what you just brought up. Thank you. And, you know, he actually literally says that in, one, in another letter. He says, it is impossible for any author to avoid incarnating his worldview, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, into a text. Like, you can't, especially if you're a Christian, as you said. So I thought that was interesting. Because um, that's something he he really said, which is also think, telling. Yeah, for sure. I think kind of what you're driving at too is how imposed it like the different like there's different levels of allegory and how imposed mm -hmm. is it. So like the framework of his world is allegorical, but to learn the lessons that he's trying to provide through the story. It's not beating somebody over the head with a baseball bat that says this is Christian over and over and over. It's that's right. Telling the stories, just like you mentioned in the parables that Jesus would tell, he would he would say things in ways that the common person would understand. That's um, exactly Tolkien right. was kind of doing the same thing through through Lord of the Rings and the rest of his his writings. And while slightly technical, it may be worth it if you'd like for me to zoom in on that point you just made. And focus on to an interested listener or, or student of Tolkien and a student of Christ and scripture. What exactly is it about the structure of the story and the way language is used that makes it preachy versus not preachy? Let's just put it that way. Or, you know, yeah, I'd love hanging. to hear that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, cool. So, one scholar I felt was, and I don't agree with her on every point she makes about Tolkien. I mean, uh, she kind of contradicts some of the biblical scholars, and I don't know her particular background or area of expertise, but I don't think it's biblical scholarship. And anyway, she's got a great book. Um, her name is Gisela Kreglinger. I, th I think it's called Storied Revelations. It's a really um, interesting book that in its second chapter, I would recommend it as a primer for anybody wanting to understand what we're about to talk about. Uh, and Tolkien is given, uh, as is Lewis, tons of references, so that's also of interest. Um, the book is about George MacDonald, the Scottish writer, if I'm not mistaken, that Lewis uh, and Tolkien both adored, more so Lewis. Um, anyway, she makes a distinction. So she talks about metaphor, allegory, parable, all in one chapter. Uh, and she makes a distinction, as Tolkien did, and he also did this in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Pearl, and Sir Orfeo, a, a collection of medieval poems that he uh, translated. Or in the, the introduction to Pearl, he says something similar. He makes, as does Craiglinger, a distinction between allegory as composition, okay, and I'll define these in a second, and allegory, or I'm sorry, allegorical mode, right? And a moment ago, I mentioned that there's a distinction. So allegory is composition. Uh, let's see, I have somewhere in the notes here. Um, here's what Tolkien says in his introduction to the medieval poem Pearl. To be an allegory, a poem, now he's talking about as composition. To be an allegory, a poem must as a whole, with fair consistency, describe in other terms some event or process. Here's the key point. Its entire narrative and all of its significant details should cohere and work together to this end. And then interestingly, but an allegorical description of an event does not make that event itself allegorical. So Tolkien's saying, look, you know, there can be allegorical language. He says this in his letters too. 
in a, a story, but that doesn't make the entire thing allegorical. So that's allegory as a composition is where the entire story is written in the allegorical mode, where uh, you think of Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, right, and others, and, and perhaps maybe The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, although a case could be made, maybe Tolkien was a little too hard on Lewis, that's another, you know, topic, but um, anyway, those would be certainly, maybe, and maybe some of these medieval poems that I mentioned, although not so much Sir Gawain, but anyway, that every element really adds up, you know, look here, but we really want you to look over here. This, mm -hmm. this, is, this story is just a flimsy you know, thing to push over. We really want you to, to see this. So the, yeah. the intrinsic value of the story, I mean, there is none. It's, it's, it's a front. It's a knockoff. It's really just about something else. And so that doesn't suck us in. It's not engrossing. That's kind right. of what rings of power ended up being. I was, I was <laughs> just going to say that. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Um, and so it's like, eh, you can push that over. So, so, you know, for, for a story to be completely allegorical, I mean, it has to be soaked with illusions and they have to be crisp and clear. And that's what Craiglinger says. She says um, the same vein about allegory as a composition, a strict allegory, as she calls the conscious and intentional. That's what Tolkien mm -hmm. said. is usually a longer unit or story with a set of elements. Each element of the allegory corresponds to or compares with an element of the reality or subject it seeks to depict. The correspondence between the elements is clear. It's predictable. The aim of the allegory is for the reader to see through the guys and detect the resemblance of the, you know, the, the whole goal is to decode it. That's exactly what Tolkien didn't want. And you can't do it. However, you will find moments, many moments, where you can. And that's because, and Tolkien himself seemed to concede this, that the allegorical mode can be part of a story without being dominated, without dominating the story. And so yeah. you will see parallels between Aragorn and Christ, quite a few, in fact. But you cannot say, oh, the Paths of the Dead is exactly like Holy Saturday and the Harrowing of Hell and First Peter and, okay, and, you know, this is like that and the marriage is, you know, uh, finding of the sapling of the tree. And you can't square them up and completely say it's this for that. But the sure. illusions and the, and the suggestiveness between the two things are there, but they're mysterious. You know, it's not clear. Uh, which is yeah, actually awesome. that's fascinating yeah i hadn't Isn't hadn't it? thought about it in those terms before but i mean sam and i have kind of surface me. level discussed that without understanding kind of the depths and the descriptions and you know all the definitions sure. that you gave well i'm I'm glad because i mean i was in the same boat and it was just i mean you can ask my wife uh i was you know pretty much banging my head against the wall trying to figure this out for years and it was just maddening uh, and so having the language, I don't always talk about it this way, but having the language to kind of explain to somebody to go a little deeper helps like understand the anatomy of how a story like this works. Mm. Um, you know, and the, the metaphorical mode, essentially scholars tell us, and this is the great thing about parables that, and some scholars have described the Lord of the Rings as a parabolic novel, which is fascinating. Mm. When the story shifts into metaphorical mode, we're interested in dissimilarities between two things. And, and finding few similarities, but like I was just talking about with Aragorn. So the metaphorical mode is more mysterious. It's more suggestive. It isn't substitutionary. That's the funny thing. Everybody thinks metaphor is this for that, but that's really yeah. what allegorical is. Mm -hmm. Metaphors are like, this is kind of that, uh, but not really. You know, it's, uh -huh. it's suggestive. And I found, I'm like, wow. So a good parable has an alternation between the allegorical mode and the metaphorical mode. I talk about this in my book. And when the 
allegorical correspondences you begin to find, let's say, between the biblical narrative and characters and events, types, etc., in the Lord of the Rings, when they begin to break down, like when you talk about Elendil and his sons and Arian and, and Isildur coming to Middle Earth from, you know, the destruction of Numenor, you think, oh, it's hey, Noah. don't don't forget his don't forget his daughter. Don't, oh don't my gosh! Uh, yes, she was there too. Um, yeah, that, whatever. Sorry, sorry. sorry I, to... I don't remember her daughter's name. He's <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Yeah. Sorry, continue. I, I told totally no, no. We 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 left her in Numenor, I guess. Uh, I, yeah, rather I did. Um, no, no. So I mean, um, <laughs> basically, you know, it's um. It's a Noah story, people think. And so it's like, okay, it's not exactly a Noah story. And it doesn't match up with where it, we would expect it to be in the narrative. And so when they when those correspondences break down like that, it's actually where we're like almost learning to come back to the Bible and, and read it with different eyes. And and we're also still at the same time able to enjoy Tolkien's story with all of its integrity without, you know, superimposing another narrative onto it. So it's it's just great how it all works together. Yeah, and it sounds like there's just a whole lot of depth. Like, that's what I kind of keep hearing is that, like, in order to get an allegory that is everything that you just mentioned, like, there just has to be so much depth to it. And I think that's where Tolkien goes beyond the fantasy that we see around the world, you know, or like, like new fantasy shows or movies. Like, Tolkien created an entire universe to just get immersed into so that you can just enjoy it for what it is. Or, you know, like you're doing, like, you can deep dive into it and kind of see the connections and see where he... Uh, intentionally or unintentionally just spilled out his, his heart for the gospel, um, which mm -hmm. is really cool. And I, I think that does parallel a lot with Jesus because even his disciples yeah. are like, you know, these are hard teachings who can understand this. And, mm -hmm. and so it's, it's like, well, you'll get there. It'll yeah. take some time, but you'll understand here in a minute. And definitely will. it's up to the reader if they want to actually do that. That's right. And it goes back to what Murray was saying earlier, you know, uh, in his essay uh, about, the invitation to the reader, right? And it's it's an open invitation. You know, Christ stands at the door and knocks. Uh, you have to open it and let him in. So, but um, it, it's bothering me now. What what was uh, Elendil's daughter's name? I mean, I don't think he had. I don't think he had one in Tolkien's universe. It well, was just in the Rings of Power, <laughs> or at least not. Yeah, I know. Um, I can't even remember. But yeah, I have no idea. Arian, Arian. That sounds right. Uh, it sounds like it. An Arian. <laughs> I don't know. Um. No, it was just bothering me. Yarian, I believe, maybe. Yarian. Yeah, you're, you're close. Yarian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. No, that you know, with the show, there's not a a match one for one with so many things. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Yeah. So, uh, just kind of maybe spend just a couple more minutes, then we can dive into maybe our conversation on the show. But I'd love yeah. to hear just a little bit more. So, your interpretation of the Lord of the Rings specifically you parallel Aragorn with Jesus. And I know in, in your notes, you, you mentioned like he was, he's the, he's been the King all along. We just hadn't seen it, you know? And especially that's where the difference is between the movies and the books. Like Aragorn owns the kingship from the get go yeah. in the books. Movies, that's not right. so much, you yeah. know, there's a whole, whole lot of reasons why Peter Jackson didn't do that. But yeah, you know, I kind of like, I kind of see what you're saying now. Cause in the books, Aragorn owns that and he's on his way to go take his throne. And, yeah. you know, so yeah, I just, that expand on that a little bit yeah certainly um let me just preface it by saying i, I you know i love jackson's films uh, for the most part i think they were very faithful um i wish that they had reforged uh Narsil, you know and Andriel um before they left rivendell on december 25th uh like the books tell us but that's not the way it happened so sure. it was still pretty 
good. It was awesome, you know, the way they did it, but uh, it was Hollywood. So, um, yeah, there are so many authors that talk about this kingship theme. I mean, for Tolkien personally and politically, he was a monarchist, uh, and I don't know much about this subject itself, but as I understand it, you know, he was a big supporter of it and maybe is probably like Lewis described in, in ways that are medieval um, or certainly a little later than that in English history. But, you know, I, I just think that's important just to remind people that the language of God as king was very important to Tolkien because in, in another letter he says that the Lord of the Rings is all about God and his sole right to divine honor. I mean, that's a pretty pretty explicit statement. That's what Peter Kraft has said that the main character of the Lord of the Rings, and Tolkien says this too, is God. But he's he's not there. He's he's never named, but he's always present, Tolkien says. Um, and that's so true. But the the fascinating connection between Aragorn, and yes, I do spend most of my book talking about that. I don't uh, regrettably talk about Frodo and Gandalf and and, and Sauron and, and others and Morgoth or Melkor as much as I'd love to, although I do have a chapter that deals with the debate of Finrod and Andreth, which we'll talk about when we talk about the show and the mm -hmm. Silmarillion. I talk about the Hobbit and Thorin. Um, so I try to do a lot with kingship and Aragorn in the book, and uh, it's much too much to say here. So I hope people will maybe take a look at it. But absolutely, um, yeah, because uh, you know can't I can't do justice to it. But what I what I will just draw out is really one cool thing that I I think readers who are careful. I know there's a lot of technical stuff to get out of the way in my book, but if you get to the meat of the book, chapters three through five, which is all Tolkien, um, I, I was interested when I started to learn about more about the the Ainur and the Valar and the Maiar and how um, Manwe is connected to Iluvatar. And the way that Tolkien, as I understand it, theologically understood this is that Manwe was, he's a Valar, right? As everybody knows, he is God's expression of his imminence in the created universe. Whereas Iluvatar is, you know, a poetic expression of his transcendence. And then, as yeah. we always say in the Christian tradition, you know, God is transcendent and imminent. He's not just, you know, like a deism says where he's off away from the world. And he's not a pantheistic God or force like Brahman or Tao uh, in you know, Hindu traditions, uh, various Hindu traditions and Taoism. He's he's as Tolkien says in the debate text, uh, he's like a painter who enters his picture, but still is the painter or an author who enters his story. Mm -hmm. He's the author within and without Tolkien says, which is so brilliant. Um, yeah. But Brad Berzer, who's a Tolkien scholar and a Catholic, talks about the connection between Iluvatar or Eru, uh, Manwe and Aragorn and how it was always Manwe's destiny to rule through one of the children of Iluvatar, which are the elves and men, um, and how, you know, he would be the first born, first to rule among, you know, Middle Earth. And when Gandalf crowns Aragorn and says, may the thrones of the Valar endure. So you make all these cool connections and then draw out that theme. And that's what I do in my book and show how, um, you know, the story of the gospel, the good news of the return of the king, you know, the gospel of Middle Earth is all about, uh, you know, like like Frodo says in the Red Book, he says it's about it's all about the downfall of of the Dark Lord and uh, the return of the King. That is the gospel in a nutshell. And so I try to draw that out in the text and show how God is present, not allegorically uh, as an incarnation, uh, the way we would maybe expect, but He's still nonetheless present. So this is very difficult to do with this allegory business, but I try to do it, and it was a lot of fun because I love Aragorn. That was the character that drew me in sucked me in so absolutely 
Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing, especially the the connection with Manway too. I I wouldn't even have thought to put those together. Either, and you're welcome. Thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Kind of a little transition here, but it's something I'm curious about. How has your study of Tolkien and through this process changed how you teach at the at the university? Because um, there's no way you can read Tolkien and it not change your worldview or the way you interpret other texts or especially being a humanities professor. Um, I'm sure that it had some impact on that. Certainly. Uh, Thanks. That's a great question. I mean, I'd have to think about it. You know, we often don't reflect enough on ourselves. Uh, I have been doing a lot of reflecting lately, though, and I would say that um, it's permeated, you know, everything that I that I look at and myth beca- has become absolutely central to mm-hmm. that's my shtick right myth is sort of that's my podcast our, our podcast mythic mission um, we have a website you know you can look up I can give it to y'all but um, that's also part of the theme of all my syllabi and drawing out Tolkien and Lewis on myth and so yes it's definitely saturated everything that I do but of course I do teach on subjects that have nothing to do with it. And obviously it's not so much, you know, cause I have rules I have to follow, but, but I will yeah. say I try to emulate the art of the parable. And that is the sort of worldview of Jesus, the approach to teaching that Jesus did, which is not hammer over the head. And so I, I feel that I do try to communicate Christian myth or worldview to my students without communicating it to them. No, and so I really do feel that it's uh, become a really big part of me. And it's funny though because I'll see and I'll have some semesters like I have a guy in the front row who's basically keeping tally of all my Lewis and Tolkien references. And, <laughs> and at first it was kind of like rude because of the way he was doing it, and then it was just kind of like an eye roll. And I'm like, well, listen, you all have favorite authors, you know, and uh, you, you know, I wouldn't knock you for your favorite game or whatever it is. And so, I, in my defense, I kind of said. These authors are my are my soul. They're part of my soul, and so they come out in everything that I do. And I, so I kind of, kind of, I think I humbled them a little bit. I hope I did. Uh, and and now it's more of a funny thing. Like I can tell a few of them are keeping tabs, and I'm going to ask them what the running you know tally is, <laughs> how many references. So I didn't take offense, but it it, it stung me a little bit because it's like, well, why do you have a problem with that? And I found so many people down through the years have a problem with it. It's because maybe they know they're right. I had a student years ago. I basically quoted Peter Kraft to them and said, you know, if you love the Lord of the Rings, you unconsciously love Christ in the Christian mm-hmm. story. And I think that people push back from that, but it's sure. it's all too true. Um, so, you know, it's it's uh, it's hard sometimes not to get defensive of Tolkien and Lewis, you know, and, and of, of course, especially of Jesus. So that's hard. It's a it's a juggling act, especially at a secular college, you know. Um, sure, sure. Yes. So there's that, that whole thing, too. That's hard. Yeah, something that you mentioned, like just that idea that if you love Lord of the Rings and with what you're saying about it being an allegory, but also kind of not, but like, like you have to love the, at least the, the story of Jesus. Like, even if you're not behind Jesus as my personal savior, as my, you know, as my God, as my brother in Christ, like you have to understand and love the story. And that's what's, I mean, that what you just said just kind of blew my mind thinking like there's so many people out there looking for that kind of a story and they love the story. They just don't want it to be true for some reason. That's what Tolkien says at the end of On Fairy Stories. You know, he's like, there's no tale that more men ever wanted to not be true and yet intuit that it is. And so it's like they, they didn't, it's, it reminds me of Romans one, you know, and I think Romans chapter two as well, where we're suppressing knowledge of God. Um, but we all want to be part of that story. And I, it resonates with me and my personal story because 
that's what was happening to me. I'm like, I think I was trying to reject the gospel. And I'm saying that this isn't that exciting. This is more exciting. And God was like, well, that is, I'm that mine is the original man. Like read me. Mm. And so yeah. I get it. Um, but that's all Peter Kraft. I mean, he's my favorite author. Uh, he's the one that when he wrote that, you know, if you love the Lord of the Rings, you unconsciously love the Christian story. And I'm like, that's it. That's like the greatest yeah. apologetic to share with, with people. Um, so yeah, I, I'm also, you know, I marvel at it. Hmm. Good stuff. That's great. Uh, we, I've, we've got, I'm sure we have a million other questions we could ask you. you you seem to be just a undying well of knowledge here, which is awesome. Uh, Seth, do you have Appreciate any more that. questions before we kind of transition from the interview time? No, I, I think honestly for me, that's, I, I have some self-reflecting to do <laughs> based on <laughs> what you were saying. Cause I know kind of like, like you were a few years back, I definitely much prefer to dive into the Lord of the Rings. And I've, I've actually questioned that recently. Like I've gotten so much more into Tolkien's expanded works versus mm -hmm. just the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Mm. It makes me wonder how much more knowledge I'd have of scripture and how it would change my life. If I put that same amount of effort into, you know, uh, the Bible and learning that, but at the same time, it's just so much more entertaining to me at this, at this point in my life. So it's like, yeah, I, there's, there's something there that, you know, I need to reflect on. I, I hear you. And that's, that's great uh, that you have that perspective. And, and I, it obviously resonates with me. I would say uh, one last thing to you just to kind of inspire you in the debate of Finrod and Andreth. I think uh, I learned this from Brad Berger's book. He was talking about how Chris Tolkien, uh, one of Tolkien's sons, uh, mm. who I know died uh, what last year, I think, uh, yeah, right as I think it was right before they started actually filming the Rings of Power, which yeah, was, it was like the day before, if I'm right. Oh my goodness, something like that. Yeah, it just yeah. reminded me. Yeah, uh, well, he had uh, he had written that my father's debate text of Finrod and Andreth, uh, it was you know Finrod is a character in the Rings of Power uh, as Galadriel's older brother. Um, uh, where I was going with this, he says that it's like an extension of Christian theology and. Uh, several have mentioned that it's the most incarnational of Tolkien's texts and mm -hmm. meditating on that text in particular has really changed the way I not only look at Tolkien, but especially look at scripture. It's really beautiful. I mean, it's a hard read, especially with the souls and bodies stuff and the Job like sure. dialogue, but it's yeah. so, it's just so wonderful. And that, that's a great segue too. like when I was looking at Finrod on the show and I'm like, okay, this is the same guy, you know, and I'm putting it all, I'm all excited. And, you know, maybe they'll have some references in there. No, it was just cheesy dialogue. And you know, yeah. we have to touch the darkness before we see the light. I'm like, no, that's not Tolkien at all. We don't have to sin before we know what right is. I mean, that just doesn't, yeah, doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. Kind of along those lines that, I mean, I feel like the show really, and maybe we'll transition into that now, but um, mm. just basically what you said, the show was trying so desperately to sound like Tolkien that it came across as cheesy because at its core with like, and I haven't studied the debate of Fendrod and, and Andreth. I've, I've read it and listened to it once or twice. So I have an idea, but it, as you're well aware, it's very, very deep. And so the show is very surface level with dialogue that doesn't match up with what they're trying to accomplish. Whereas Tolkien oh. it's embedded into everything. And so yeah. it's hard for, you know, the show to, they just come up short in trying to be Tolkien. Yeah, the writing. I mean, so I was uh, trying to assemble 
a bunch of interesting things to talk about today. And I, I, the one thing I regret I didn't get to do enough of was get some of the lines from the show. Mm-hmm. But I remember, um, and I think Muriel is a Numenorian, actual Numenorian character. But when when uh, Elendil and Muriel and Galadriel and, and maybe somebody else were there, Halbrand, I can't remember, talking over the map. And she says, there's a tempest to me. I'm thinking, see, that's the kind of characterization of Galadriel I, I didn't like. And with the stink face that she always had and the yeah. sneer yeah. and my wife didn't characterize it. So, uh, so <laughs> tamely, she had other words for it, but yeah. Um, yeah. she was spot on. And I'm like, yeah, like those kinds of lines. I'm like, that's, that's trying to sound like um, Shakespeare or Tolkien or, you know, English and in, in some, you know, highfalutin kind of way. And it just, it just fell flat. I'm like, it, and it also was just unfaithful to, I think, as far as I know, the you know the character of Galadriel, and I've been doing some research, and uh, just as an example, and I'm like, she's so angry all the time, mm-hmm. so angry and vindictive, and I'm like, yeah, that's not, that's not Galadriel. So, I, well, and I think at its core, the so, like you mentioned earlier, we love the Peter Jackson movies. We love them. There's changes that they made. Primarily for me, it's Aragorn and Faramir. I do not like those changes because it takes Faramir. away from the depth of the character being able to know right from wrong and make the correct choice. It's, it's integrity that they have that the movies kind of take away with that being said, agreed, agreed. The overall theme of Peter Jackson is true to Tolkien. Mm -hmm. And I, Peter Jackson himself said, we didn't want to put any of our messages in. We wanted it to be Tolkien's story. Whereas that's right. Rings of power is almost entirely, well, we're putting our own themes in and slapping Tolkien on the outside of the container. Yeah, they literally and, said we're trying to write what Tolkien didn't. We're trying to write the story that Tolkien didn't. It's like why <laughs> he wrote fiction. Way too many. Yeah, yeah. It's, then then call it that if that's what it is. But like especially with exactly. with Galadriel being so angry too, and and something that I've seen kind of reflecting on the on the season. Now I haven't watched any of the episodes more than once, um, which I think just for for me shows just my my disdain for it, or even just yeah. like boredom with it. But the theme that I kind of yes. saw is. They were trying to paint, and especially for people who don't know who Sauron is, like they're just coming in, like I'm just going to watch this, like let's get to know this. They're seeing Sauron, like oh yeah, he tried to be a good guy. Gladriel is the one that pushed him over the edge. Like he's trying to, he was, he didn't want to go back to the Southlands. He just wanted to stay in Numenor and and be a smith. And he didn't have a master plan to take over the world. Aquagorn, <laughs> as they were calling him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so that's like that's one of my biggest things. It's like how can you. Yeah. How can you create those characters that way where Galadriel is, is somehow the, the, the bad guy in all this yeah. and and yes. Sauron's the, the you know the anti-hero in a sense for a little bit? Yes, and, uh, excellent thought. And and not only the Aquagorn stuff I was seeing on Twitter and the funny things and um but just this whole idea that this is the guy that sent werewolves to murder Finrod and Baron in the dungeons of was it yeah. Tolan Garoth? And I'm thinking yeah. he's a uh I can't, I'm a reluctant, you know, I, I, I've done some bad things, but I'm reformed. I'm like, no, no, yeah. that's, that's not the same guy. Like that, that's not Sauron. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So it was, it was just really stupid writing. I mean, and I know that's not a very scholarly way to put it, but <laughs> there were, there was so much good material to use as a template. Yeah. And why didn't you, I was asking myself that with the first episode, like, why didn't you do that? No, okay, you don't. Ha- they don't have the rights to the Silmarillion, isn't that true? That's what they know. claim, <laughs> but I feel like they keep pulling stuff from the Silmarillion and other store and other tales that who yeah. knows. 
I'd like to know more about that because I don't have a definitive answer. But if they do in any way, shape or form, shame on them because you could have done so much better easily. I mean, and still, you know, added your own flourishes if you really can't help yourself. But it was just a very just even the impersonal way they did uh, Ungolian and Morgoth uh, or Melkor, I guess he before he was Morgoth mm-hmm. um, with the two trees. And I'm like, all we get is a shadow. Yeah, like that's it. I've been yeah. waiting for this. What about the Ainu Lindale? I mean, there was, you know, we had some singing, some sand moving around, uh, you know, with the creation. Did you guys see that? The the, the sand intro? Yeah. Um, was supposed to be the song of creation, I guess. I uh, never put that together, <laughs> to be yeah, honest. Neither did, neither did I. Uh, but that's <laughs> that's what I had learned. So oh. it's, it's like they almost tried to go too deep in areas that it was even for people who know the Lord, it's like, well, that's kind of a, st- a stretch or maybe like you're, I see what you're trying to do, but you're, you put so much thought into that. And yet your dialogue is just horrific. Mm-hmm. Like, why couldn't you put that much thought in your, in your writing and your dialogue? And I get like the one thing that Peter Jackson had at his disposal at all the time was yeah. the books and that he had dialogue to actually use. He could go straight word for word for Tolkien. And if, and if when he and Fran Walsh didn't want to do that, they had a really good framework to, work with and i know there's yeah, not a did. whole lot of that in the second age with the silmarillion you don't get a whole lot of actual conversations and dialogue but mm-hmm. even still if you read through lord of the rings you can create better dialogue than what we saw on oh. the show i would have to imagine and hands down agree and, and i think that um uh well, on facebook i to my friends and family and you know acquaintances and such i had said i had just depressed you know first post after the first episode i, I probably had a, a few too many uh you know, I was at, I was, uh, was that, what's the line from the first movie? Uh, have you been at the gaffer's old brew? Maybe, it, you know, I was, I was drinking my sorrows. Oh, well, yes. But yeah, yes. But that's not the point. point. Yeah. <laughs> I love that line. So um, sometimes I'll ask my kids that when they're acting crazy, they love it. Um, have <laughs> you been at the gaffer's old brew? So I was, and I was very sad. And my wife was like, they're there, you know, after the first two episodes. And, and then the last episode, I think it's because I was so starving. Everything in between was just a horrible blur for me. I, I, it was it was sure. boring. The yeah. last episode, yeah. I, I posted some thoughts. I'm like, it redeemed it somewhat because hmm. I liked some of the way they handled the reveal with Sauron, some of it, and Kellen Brimbor, and obviously spoilers. I know people expected that. And with the three rings, even though that's been completely botched, but I, I think I was just starving to see something I recognized, you know, sure, and yes. So anyway, for what it's worth, that's what. So, so what was. about that last episode specifically? I know you mentioned like Celebrimbor and the rings, but yeah, w- where did you feel like you were, your cup was filled up a little bit yeah. for what you recognized? That That's, that's a good way to put it. I, I felt like with the dialogue between Halbert, I mean, it was all very abrupt. They needed more buildup, you know, he's sure. injured. He's like the wounded King. And now, you know, they're, they're flying on horseback to, uh, to a region and it's like, okay, but setting all that aside, what really filled my cup back up, as you said, was that, you know, the little way that they said Anatar without saying Anatar, mm-hmm. you know, the giver of gifts, he's like, think of it as a gift. And I'm like, ah, I know what that means. You know? And I was, sure. you know, nerding out. And I'm like, okay, the kind of subtle way that Halbrand kind of weaseled his way in there, the influence, um, reflecting back on like some of the things he said in Numenor, some of that, and you know, some of the cookie crumbs they left, I thought was okay. And I saw what they were trying to do is show that he was a deceiver. But it's ruined by all that other stuff we were talking about with the anti-hero nonsense. Uh, if they had not had that, that might have been better. Like the um, 
good stuff. Like I know you guys like, I, I think if I heard correctly, um, with uh, Elrond and Durin. Um, but anyway, yeah, that that was like the big moment for me. Uh, the rest of it was just kind of like, oh, well, the rings are being made out of order, and yeah. you know, okay, now he's gone to Mordor, and so how are they gonna make him come back and influence Celebrimbor, or has he already planted the seed? I don't know. Right. I don't get it. Yeah, that's the that's the tough part too, because like knowing when you read the story, just how like you said, deceiving Sauron. And it's like, he's got a plan the whole time. And, and I feel like they were trying to do both the anti-hero, but also show that at the same time. And you can't do that because, you know, he can't be this like guy who's trying to be a good guy and still create weapons of mass destruction, you know, so to speak. <laughs> exactly. And, and so really. I was, but, but you're right. I did feel like when he said that, like, Oh, I know what that means. Like it, it made mm. me feel good. Like when I, when I watched the Hobbit, like obviously there's plenty of things in there too, that we can, we can uh, discuss, but, you know, sure. you see things, you're like, oh, I know where this is going. I've, I've, yeah. you know, I've heard that dialogue. I've seen this. Like, it just kind of makes you excited, right? Because it, it gives a, it a visual to what you've read. And, and yep. there was just so little of that well in the show. No, and I'm trying to think, like, from episode three through eight, I don't remember. I mean, maybe the dialogue with um, uh, Ad- or Adar, uh, you know, with the origin of the orcs it made me think back to the silmarillion and so like you were saying earlier maybe they do have the rights i don't know or they just weaseled their way in there with that but you know it was things like moments like that where the light broke through and uh, i thought the music was pretty well done and i just saw an article about how halbrand's theme and sauron's theme by bear mccreary the composer uh like i i don't i'm not a music theorist but i guess it's like they're opposites and so if you play one the other way or opposite way it would be the same song. So it's really cool how they inverted those tracks and made it oh, thematic. Yeah. I thought that was a lot of thought. I mean, so yeah, great, great music. Um, the Valinor theme was really beautiful. I liked that. Yeah. Um, very haunting and uh, ethereal and everything you did, you know, expected to be. Um, yeah, I love Galadriel's the cause of doom theme too. That was great. Oh, yeah, that's the best. Yeah. Dun, dun 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 dun. Yeah, I love it. Just puts you it's, right in there. Yeah, it does. And what do you guys think about that storyline with uh, Durin and? I'll I'll talk first, just because I know Seth is going to disagree <laughs> with me. <laughs> I I can. It's one of those that I can actually enjoy. Like the rest yeah. of them. Like even though I know what I'm seeing with Elrond and Durin, especially with the whole Mithril thing, I know is not in Tolkien's work at all. But the dialogue is entertaining. The in a sense that it's like it's funny. I mean, Durin's just give me really good Gimli vibes is what I keep saying is yeah. he's just kind of that, yeah. which I know was not Gimli in the books of, of Tolkien whatsoever. You know, this is a Peter Jackson version more so with like the comical, uh, yeah. get up yeah. that he's got. But I thought there was just a lot more depth to those characters and, and also seeing a really cool like relationship, a friendship where, mm-hmm. you know, there is issues and they resolve those issues. And then also seeing kind of a family. I didn't, I didn't care for Disa's character that much, but it's kind of cool seeing, you know, a husband and wife trope in Tolkien's world because we really mm-hmm. haven't seen that up to this point, or at least not for an elongated time where the where the wife has much input into into the husband's life. And yeah, especially being a husband myself, like my wife is has input on everything that I do. So, mm-hmm. you know, it just kind of made me like, oh, chuckle, like, yeah, my wife would comment on that too. You know, she would say for something dynamics. like that too. So yep. I, I enjoyed I that part that. of it. But but yeah. definitely like episodes, I think it was like seven and eight with with the leaf and with the mithril and everything, I started losing interest just because I was like, this is so different. Yeah. But they, I liked the acting of it, I guess. Yeah, I did too. I mean, I, I, I liked the, uh, the friendship theme between Elrond and Durin and 
the no the ennobling sort of dialogue was okay uh and and did give me a few goosebump moments of just you know the for Tolkien and Lewis, friendship was such an important thing. They were very, they spoke with a lot of gravitas about it. I, I thought that was captured very well. Yeah. Um, you know, because we all crave for meaningful relationships like that. And I thought, yeah, that's, I can feel Tolkien there. And that, that made me happy. So, yeah. Definitely. Seth, you can give your two cents. <laughs> well, I mean, out of all the, the interactions in the show, I think that that was the, you know, the best one. I, from the beginning, it kind of bothered me how they're doing all this time compression. I get it. And he hasn't seen Durin in what, what do they say? Like 20 years. Well, yeah. Elrond at this yeah. point in time is probably like 1500 years old. Durin's probably already 70 or 80. Like it's not this big deal. And did he send him an invite? Like it just, the way that that confrontation started and then was resolved so quickly, mm-hmm. it was like they were using it as just kind of a, okay, we're going to, bring the story to the end point so that they can be friends. It felt like it was rushed to me, but that the confrontation and frustrations and everything just weren't really valid. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, the way they interact and stuff, I really don't mind. What bothers me more than that is really just the, the whole mithril storyline. <sighs> and we have to dig it to save the elves because the light of the Silmarils and, I mean, that's when I just was like, okay, now I really don't care about the Dwarven plotline either, yeah. when at the beginning it was the most entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was unnecessary. And I, I tried, um, I found, I was reading the Silmarillion, I found a few references, I, I think thematically what they were trying to, to to capture about the beauty of Mithril and the, you know, Tolkien has a couple of lines about preserving the, the longevity of the elves. I'm thinking, did they take these lines and, uh, you know, and and just warp them and i'm like okay, i think they did you know they they created a storyline out of a couple of references that really had more to do I th- if i understand correctly with the elves trying to recreate valinor in middle earth in order to make it feel those that stayed at least you know to sure. make it more like that and i'm like well, you could have just done that uh the whole arwen undamiel that the, the whole peter jackson her giving up her immortality i think they were trying to mirror that sure um Right with uh, with the necklace and all that stuff. So uh, I I agree with you. It just really had me kind of lose interest. How how did you feel about the original characters? Um, Me personally, I really didn't care for any of them except Adar. For whatever reason, Adar to me was by far the best original character, and I didn't really care for any of the other ones. I, I will say uh, I liked the way the orcs were done. They were pretty terrifying. Yeah. Let me say that. That was well done. Um, uh, Arondir, I think his name is, right? I, and I, here's me. I couldn't remember, you know, uh, Elendil's daughter's name too. That one, <laughs> obviously not memorable. Um, Arondir the elf, uh, Ronwyn, um, and Theo, I, I found just like he was just a sniveling little brat. I just didn't like yeah. him. I just wanted to, I'm going to say it. I just wanted to nail him in the face. Like, you know, man up, man. Come <laughs> yeah. on, like. Yeah. It. like uh, you just had a, that face that you just don't like and you know, that sounds horrible but it was just a very sappy character that they, they, it never felt like a fully fleshed out character that i i liked um and the and her you know the mom ronwin was just it, it's like the two lines i always hear in, in cinema or tv either there's a storm coming or or uh who will stand and fight i'm like if i hear one yep. more person <laughs> say either of these lines i'm gonna end it I just can't take it anymore. Like she said it like three times and like, just stop. 
that's all you say. Sorry, I'm yelling into the mic here, but no, no you're, you're good. Uh, you're fine. <laughs> so I completely agree. Yeah, there you go. So take it away. Yeah, that's, that's those are my thoughts. Yeah, definitely. The what I was probably most hurt by, and I say hurt because again, I know JD and, and Patrick McKay, like they didn't, they were not thinking of Sam Moldenhauer when they were making this movie. They don't know who I am. This they were show. thinking of Tolkien, so don't take it personally. Well, okay. <laughs> But I had such a personal tie with this because I, I was like thinking, oh my gosh, more Tolkien, like Second Age, let's go, whole series, we can spend as long as we want in in Middle Earth, like this is going to be so cool. And then yeah. where I was just most hurt by was they're like, we're going to create our own characters. Yeah. We're going to take the characters that you know and love and give them less screen time than our own characters. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? And I get the idea of what they're trying to do with the Harfoots and the stranger, which I love his dialogue. I am good. Okay. <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, it's like, come on. Like, I, I didn't want you. I'm sorry, yeah. but I didn't watch your characters. I wanted Tolkien's characters. I was excited to see them more. And, yeah. and even the ones that you made, like, like the Galadriel, who's supposed to be like, you know, your, your star character is dragging the show down with a boulder the size of Texas. It's just, I don't know. Well, it makes me sad. But, but then hold on, uh, you know, aren't you forgetting the line that her brother said, you know, why does this, sh- what is what was it? Like, why does a ship not go up? Why does it? Uh, so I was trying to think oh of something witty to insert that in there, but <laughs> I'm like, what the heck does that even mean? Is yeah. that just supposed to sound serious? And I'm like, that's yeah. Uh, and and yeah, that, she, I think that was such a, a rock does not because that's the ship does knows the depth of the water i don't know i don't it that's was... yeah that that's more yeah obviously more correct than my garbled uh <laughs> but uh i love what you said you know that you just have all these rich wonderfully developed characters and like i would have understood a, a few would have been fine maybe maybe just you know or, or even none but yeah the fact that they had they felt the need to do that and then i have a question for you guys about the stranger and and your thoughts on that but yeah uh i, I think that was well said yeah, what's, well, that question? yeah, what's the question? So, so my wife was asking me this and, you know, up until the, the last moments, cause we watched, I, we watched them twice. Cause you know, I watched them and then she watched them. So I watched them with her and, and heckled her the whole time. Like, Shut <laughs> up, be quiet. You know, you know uh, fly you fools. <laughs> um, but uh, she was like, is that who I think it is? And I'm like, well, just, just wait until the end of the eighth episode. You, you might get a clue you know, with that line about his, uh, his nose. Are we meant to think that Gandalf is showing up earlier or is this a, Blue wizard is a, it's not Radagast. I mean, I, I think that it's meant to, it's probably like a red herring where they want you to think it's Gandalf. They're doing a little callback to the people who have seen Peter Jackson, so, kind of like you mentioned earlier, to feel something that they recognize mm-hmm. and then they're going to spin it off. And hopefully he's a blue wizard because if he is Gandalf to me, that's, I mean, Gandalf was the last wizard to arrive. He was reluctant. He didn't want to come. Kierden mm-hmm. immediately recognized the wisdom in him and gave him the ring of fire when he arrived in Linden. And so it's like, yeah, if yeah, you just right. have him as a meteor, where does he get the ring? Like, it just changes so much. Yeah, Good and Gandalf point. never went to Rune, right? And that's his whole thing is, I've got to go to Rune. And Blue Wizard. Uh, yeah, so I'm hoping it's a Blue Wizard as well. And maybe that's just a wizard thing is that you can smell where to go. That's your, that's, yeah, I, that's... I guess <laughs> I, I can barely smell anything with my allergies most of the time. So, <laughs> right. you know, uh, I, I can't, I can't say I understand, but yeah, maybe it is. And I guess I thought, you know, I'm like, Oh, that's a dead giveaway. So the time compression, but 
now that I uh, I've heard you guys talk about it, it does kind of make sense. Maybe like so many other things in the show, it's another red herring. Um, but all that to say, yeah, they don't care. They could bring him in now, sure, as they've done with many things in the show so far. So Why I not? wouldn't be surprised if it was Gandalf. And I think a lot of people are on Team Gandalf, and and at this point, they're like, just just tell us, like, just let it. Can we stop this? We've spent eight hours just guessing, and you finally reveal some things, but let's just stop with the guessing. (laughs) Who is it? Who is it? Yeah, I know. It was uh, very childish. You know, it's just kind of like, okay, a little bit of mystery is good, but this is the wrong kind. It's like, we just want you to watch, you know? It becomes becomes lazy writing when, when your whole show is what who is this what is that when it's mystery box like russian dolls mystery box inside a mystery box inside a mystery box it's like that's what your whole show comes about becomes about and instead of having impellent like characters that you want to you know follow their storylines you're constantly left guessing so that's how they're trying to hook you into the next episode because maybe we'll reveal more maybe we'll reveal more yes when in reality they don't actually have to tell a good story well and then who's going to rewatch it too like once you have the answers, what's the point of rewatching? Like right. I will rewatch Lord of the Rings, like Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, at least once a year. The extended mm-hmm. versions, of course. I'm not a heathen. Um, <laughs> good, good, good. I, I, I had faith in you. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's so all that to say, I guess. What would you rank? One out of ten stars. You're writing. A, you're writing a review on IMDb. What do you What do you rank in it? Oh, I mean, I, I would say I have to say a five or below somewhere around there. I mean, it, a five to me already tells me, you know, it's it's just not not good filmmaking or there's something wrong, you know, dialogue or pacing or something. So, I mean, I thought of like a six to because a couple of the moments. So maybe I'm drifting back and forth, but that's that's where my, my heart's at. Yeah, that's, fair. that's pretty I, I was, generous. Yeah. <laughs> I was floating around a four because like you mentioned, I love the music. I think mm-hmm. the cinematography and the, the artistry of just the scenery is, is fantastic. Like they mm-hmm. did well recreating the places that I've always read about. And I was not disappointed in any way. I was actually really excited to see all that, but very much of that. They didn't show like you had these wide sweeping shots and then it'd be in a room. And you didn't yeah. like in yeah. like when the hobbits are in Rivendell after they arrive with Strider, you go from place to place in Rivendell and you get all these beautiful, you know, landscapes and scenery. And in this, it felt like there's a wide zoom and then they just narrow it in and then you're inside a room. Mm. And so to me, it was like the big picture was beautiful, but then yeah. you really missed out on the different aspects. It didn't feel as grand because you're just mm. each of those scenes took place in a room. Yeah, almost point. like it's uh, they're like those little Japanese puzzles. I can't remember the name of them, but it, it was like a almost like a miniature. You know, it was just yeah, kind of maybe I see your point is what I'm trying to say. It was you know anticlimactic after seeing mm-hmm. that and then shrinking down. But uh, I, I will you know I will agree with with Sam too that um, also thinking about the Harfoots and some of the the scenery and some of the map overlay stuff they did was pretty good. Uh, I liked you know seeing the map of of Middle Earth and and some of the little you know prints or dots that you know showing them where they went i thought that was well done um but yeah okay so a four huh yeah yeah i'd, huh. I'd say a four not definitely not anything higher than that for me but no well let's just i'll leave it at this if i were to write a review it would get uh deleted as so many reviews have at this point Ooh. so <laughs> you bombed i'll just leave it at that uh, okay. it just i really wanted to like it and and 
The fact that you're at like a five or a six, I'm happy because that meant that, you know, you got some level of entertainment out of it, even if it fell short of your expectations and your desires. And there's mm-hmm. people, you know, the unexpected podcast, which is how we met. Um, a lot of them love it. And I'm thrilled for those people. I genuinely am happy for people that have enjoyed it because yeah. I, I just can't say the same. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I have not um, poked around, but I, I am interested in seeing what the, the Tolkien community, I follow a few people on Twitter and stuff and what they think you mentioned, the uh, Unexpected podcast. Uh, I, I, I've heard of them, but uh, th- is it most of them, they, they're kind of pro Rings of Power or? Well, it's interesting because they started like, Ez and Lane, the guys that, that run it, like they started both loving it, like episode one through, I think like three, and they would post like a, a review podcast after every time. And then, like, around four or five, Lane was like, well, I don't know about this. And then it just kind of dropped off drastically once he actually went and, like, kind of dove into the lore a little bit and was like, oh, yeah, there was so many other things you could have done with this. I thought this was all Tolkien, and I'm looking at it, and it's a lie. And and so yeah. he he kind of went to the dark side, as he would say, and he he doesn't like it as much anymore. So it's, it is interesting because both of them, like, they, they're really good friends that grew up as, as kids, and, and so they... Mm-hmm. The relationship is never going to change, but their viewpoints are are very different now, and it's interesting to hearing hearing them talk about it. Um, yeah, that's a good dynamic. Good. The one thing that this show has done, which breaks my heart, is just it's been polarizing to the Tolkien community yeah. in a way that, and I know social media is a big part of that, but it's just like, and we've mm. we've talked a little bit about this on our podcast, Seth and I have, but it's like they intentionally did that, knowing it was going to do that. Like yeah. everything that they created, everything they made. This wasn't a hey, let's all you know link arms and love this together, mm-hmm. relive Tolkien together. No, they were like, we're gonna we're gonna make a very clear divide. And yeah, I agree. I, I I feel like you know I haven't read or listened or watched too many other interviews or talks or articles about it, but from the little that I have, and I have done some, and just people's comments, I just get the sense that the maybe the more conservative lore community. Has really just been getting bashed by the, the the showrunners, and you know, I I followed some of the whole racism stuff and the you know representation, and you know that was also deeply disturbing and polarizing. I'm like, well, we don't have this problem as Christians, and Tolkien was a Christian, and so why are we even talking about this? And I get some people were trolling and saying nasty things, but that was just depressing to see as well. Another way, you know, the whole community was divided, but I almost feel like they just didn't care. If you were a conservative, like lore master, I guess, and you had something negative to say, like we have, it was like, oh, well, you don't understand our vision. You just don't understand. And I, I, I didn't like that. It just, I, the, the little interactions I've, I've experienced, I just get the sense that they're dismissive, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm happy to be wrong. I think that's a pretty accurate assumption based on the interviews that I've watched and the articles I've read from, with quotes directly from the showrunners it's very dismissive towards any constructive criticism and it falls back on the kind of like you mentioned it 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 is sad because they fall back on the racism trope which quite frankly at this point in time is just overplayed because it doesn't make you racist to dislike the show um you know there are those people out there and we condemn them all that's not those people don't belong you know, in the Tolkien community or quite frankly, anywhere they need to figure their stuff out, but Mm -hmm. criticizing the show with things that make sense for the, from the lore perspective, just to fall back on the racism thing is it's again, it's kind of like they're writing. It's lazy. It's, it's a shield for, yeah, it's a, yeah, Yeah. exactly. 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's that's just unnecessary. But okay, I'm glad to hear. Uh, well, I guess I'm not glad to hear, but I'm on the right <laughs> track. So uh, it's certainly realizing. But uh, I don't know that they, they've. I saw a line about season two, like, oh, the stuff you wanted to see in season one. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, we're gonna have that in season two. I <laughs> promised. And I'm like, that doesn't sound good. Like, are they yeah. are they repenting? I don't know. I don't know. It was their way of saying, uh, we know we screwed up. We're not going to admit that we screwed up, but we screwed up and we're going to try to do better. However, oh, yeah. the show's not coming out for a couple of years. I've heard that it's mm. going to take, they, they just started filming, which means mm. I wonder if they did that on purpose to kind of throw this trial season out there to see how the fan base would respond and then give themselves enough of a window to restructure everything uh, if it didn't land well, which I don't, I don't think Interesting. it has. Uh, yeah. And, and maybe that could be good and maybe they can, uh, maybe they can salvage something, but, or maybe not. That's my yeah. hope. Yeah. You Me feel too. like two years, that's a long time to try to keep the, the motivation or the, the momentum of the, of the show. And it's going to be really hard to reignite that for a lot of people, oh, but sure. Well, sure. Michael, we want to be honoring of your time. And I know Seth and I have got real busy lives as well. And so we mm -hmm. thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. This has been such an awesome experience for me personally. I feel like I've grown immensely in my in my young oh. years just hearing you talk. And I honestly, like, hear this from me. I wish I had you as a professor. Like, that would have been so no awesome. Um, yeah, so I'm honored and touched, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I forget how we all hooked up, but I'm glad we did. And I look forward to know developing and forging our friendships more and um who knows maybe we'll have you on mythic mission and, and have a roundtable discussion that'd be fun <laughs> yeah, there you go hey thank we, you so we much love that. Yeah, yeah thank you absolutely. man that was you really tickled my brain a little bit so i got some thinking to do yeah i'm, I'm honored thank you both yeah. Well, we always kind of close out our podcast with Gondor Calls for Aid. That's our, uh, our segment where we tell our listeners to like, subscribe, leave a review, all that kind of stuff. But for this segment specifically, just tell our listeners, the few that may be out there, where can they find you, your book, your podcasts? Like, just kind of plug yourself oh. here for a second. Oh, well, thank you. Well, first of all, subscribe to, to this podcast, please, if you haven't already. <laughs> I, I posted on Facebook for y'all, but Thank you. Uh, we have a website. Yes, you're welcome. Uh, www.mythicmission. So, like it sounds, all one word, .com. Uh, or you can just Google us. Uh, it'll probably come up. Uh, we're on Anchor, you know, I iTunes. We're hosted by Anchor, but it's, it's everywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, my book is on Amazon. It's on Whipped and Stock's website. Obviously, I always encourage people to buy directly from the publisher. Um, but, uh, you know, it's Kindle. You can get it as an ebook. Um, I thought it was on sale recently. Anyway, it's it's, uh, it's available everywhere. Books are sold. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. I'm, I'll check it out for sure. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Man, well, uh, next time we will probably jump into our continuation of our Numenor conversation with, with Seth and I. But uh, for now, thank you again for joining our fellowship. We bid you a very fond farewell.